Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel Reedy. Uh, it's been uh, two years that uh, my wife Lena and I have been uh, honored to be a part of this church and a part of this family with you, and it's uh, an honor to be asked to share the word with you today. I don't normally do any sort of a personal introduction. I like to let the text speak for itself, but I just want to just say a word. Um, this, uh, I was asked to give this, this message about two months ago. And at that time, I began praying about what the Lord wanted me to share with you or what I felt the Lord wanted me to share and uh, really heavily felt this passage on my heart. And it's something I've been preparing since that time. Um, There are a lot of things, of course, that you're going to hear me talk about today that have uh, new relevance for me personally um, and for my my dear friends, the Crossit family who are with us today. And uh, I guess, you know, there's nothing wrong with writing a message that's in response to recent events, but I think I I wanted you to know this is something that really the Lord has been walking me through um, in preparation for this time. And so we're going to talk today about worship amidst the curse. Worship amidst the curse is what I want to talk about. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. I'll give you a second. I asked Jake to read the parallel passage this morning. This story appears three times in the Bible, once in Matthew, once in Mark, once in John. Uh, There is a very similar story, but it's actually a different incident, we believe, in the book of Luke. I may touch on that in just a moment, but I I asked him to read one of those two very similar passages in Matthew and Mark, and now I'm going to read this from John. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The very next couple of verses, and I had asked Jake just to read a little bit beyond this story, but the next couple of verses here in John tell of how the Jews began to have a plot not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus again as well, uh, make sure he died a second time because he was such a testimony to who Jesus was. And so uh, I, I think that context is very interesting for reasons we'll discuss. I want to just kind of start with a little bit of the, the structure of this passage before we talk about what it tells us about worship. Uh, this is such an interesting passage because uh, the, the other two passages in Matthew and Mark tell us something about it. It tells us, Jesus says at the end of it, I tell you that wherever the story of the gospel is told, this story will be told in remembrance of her. So two very funny things strike me about that. First of all, not common that we hear Jesus saying this story, right, is going to be told in remembrance of someone else. Not in remembrance of Jesus, but in remembrance of her. I want you to remember her. I want her example, I want this testimony to be something that you hang on to, that you learn from, that you grow from. It's going to be in remembrance of her. He says, do this communion meal in remembrance of me. But this act of worship that Mary does is done in remembrance. Jesus says, we're going to remember it because of her. The second thing is he says, this is going to be told everywhere, right? Everywhere the gospel is told, everywhere throughout the corners of the world that the gospel is told, this story will be told. We're fulfilling that prophecy today. We're fulfilling that by reading this story. We also know that that was already true in the first century. 
I'm going to submit to you that this story is sort of like the first gospel story. It's the first one that went out and was told broadly. How do we know this was already popular? Well, if you go back in John chapter 11, you don't have to turn there with me. You can take my word for it, or you don't have to. Up to you. John chapter 11, when John is setting up the story of Lazarus, it's easy to miss this. We know these stories pretty well. We read through them. We recognize them. But if you're reading the story of Lazarus, you might forget that we haven't gotten to chapter 12 yet. And that's where John introduces it and says, now this Lazarus that we're talking about, this was Mary's brother, you know, the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. Before he's told the story, he says, I know you already know about this, right? This is such a well-told story, well-known story throughout the Christian world that John assumed, writing at the end of the first century, you're going to know this story. This is the same Mary as, as that Mary, right? Um, we know that John is probably the last of the Gospels written. We know that, if you're curious, from the last chapter of John, where he references Peter's martyrdom, and he actually has to dispel a myth that he's not going to live forever. He says, just so you know, Jesus didn't say I was going to live forever. I know I'm really, really old, basically. And a lot of you think that's going to happen. I just want to dispel that. Jesus never said that, okay? Um, so we know that John is written very, very late in the day. And so John is saying, after the other gospels have circulated and after this story has gone around, I know everybody's aware of this story. This blessed story where Jesus put his proclamation of blessing on it, it's something you're aware of. Why on earth? I remember as a kid wondering when I heard this story in Sunday school, they had the little flannel graph up, you know, and they moved around the little pieces and Mary washes his feet and Jesus said everywhere it's going to be told in remembrance of her. And I thought, why? Why this story? Really? I mean, does that strike anyone else? There's a lot of incredible stories that Jesus could have said, this part where I raised a guy from the dead, it will be told everywhere the gospel is told, right? He could have said, you know, where I fed the 5,000, it's the one miracle other than the resurrection that's recorded in all four gospels. Why isn't that the one he focused on? There's, there's a dozen stories. If you're asking me, in my opinion, what's the most compelling story about Jesus or about his earthly ministry? And Jesus said, this is the one that I'm putting my mark of blessing on that I want it told everywhere that the gospel is told. Why? Well, what's unique about this story? For one thing, I, I'm going to argue to you, this might be the only time that we see really a truly in-depth, selfless act of worship directed at Jesus in the gospels. There are a few others. You could, you could argue that point with me. You're, you're welcome to disagree. Uh, and and there, there are a few others we can think of. But think about this physical act of devotion, this act of service to Jesus, pouring something out on him. This is a very rare thing in the Bible. Jesus is always being tapped for more. He's always being asked, come and minister to these people, heal these people. They hear about somebody healed. And instead of coming and saying, wow, you're amazing, people pour in with all the sick people from the surrounding area and say, can you do it again? Jesus is always being asked for more. He goes away to pray, but he has compassion when he gets to the other side of the water because they're like sheep without a shepherd. So he teaches the people. Jesus is always pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And once we see someone pour out on Jesus, we see someone who gives up all the the most valuable things she has to break it and pour it out on him because she she says, you're worth it. All three of these passages emphasize that it was expensive perfume. It was something valuable. She broke it and poured it out on him. And I think that's what Jesus, I think, is saying to us is she is the first of a new breed of disciple. Up until now, the disciples have walked with Jesus. They've honored Jesus. They they consider him the Messiah. They've made declarations about him. But here we see something special. We hear somebody who says, Jesus, you gave me back my brother. You gave me back something that I loved. But instead of her hanging all over Lazarus at the dinner and being grateful to Jesus, She's hanging all over Jesus' feet. 
She's worshiping Jesus. She's saying, this is the one who's the object of my worship and my affection. And that's why I think she is worthy of our study. That's why I think she ends up at the tomb. That's why she's there at the burial. Because Mary understands something that maybe others don't get. If you're losing track, remember this is Mary, the, mother, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. A lot of Marys, very common name. This is Mary, the sister of Martha. Some scholars actually believe there's two sets of Mary and Martha in the Bible. We don't really need to get into that. The point is, common name, common little issue here, and this is the one who's responding the chapter after we've learned that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I want to just pick up one other thing from the other passage about the setting. The other passage tells us this happened at the home of Simon the leper. How would you like to be saddled with that nickname for the rest of your life, huh? Simon the leper. If you're reading just in John, you might be forgiven for thinking that this is actually at Mary and Martha's house. It doesn't appear to be, though. The other passages tell us it's the home of this guy called Simon the leper. Uh, Obviously, he's not still a leper. Obviously, this is someone that Jesus has healed. That's why they can sit there and eat with him. Um, Culturally, we know that washing somebody's feet when they came in was a sign of respect and honor. And this is understandable because, remember, they're not all sitting at a table with plates and forks and knives. Okay, They're lying down on the ground with maybe a piece of wood in the middle. Very common of uh, Middle Eastern kind of traditions is that they all eat out of the same bowls and dishes, you know? Um, So you didn't want your dirty feet next to the hummus, right? That's kind of the idea. Uh, So they would wash their feet. Sometimes in wealthy homes, they'd perfume their feet or their hands. And this is the idea. Again, you're going to be dipping in the same food together. It's it's a cleanliness thing. It's, It's sort of a respect thing. So Mary is not that strange in one sense. What is strange is that she's not the host who's doing this. The second thing that's strange is she's doing it in the middle of the dinner. And so I want to talk about why I think those things are significant. Um, John, the the writer John, gives us a lot about worship. In fact, I think he tells us more about worship than some of the other gospel writers do. Uh, I won't spend much time on this, but you can trace this going all the way back to chapter 4 when he talks to the woman at the well and Jesus says, one day it won't matter whether you worship on this mountain or in that mountain, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what the Father is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth. John didn't just write that in a vacuum. His whole book ties this theme together. And we see the rise of it starting in chapter 9 with the blind man that Jesus heals. And there's this whole dispute, and the Pharisees are arguing with him if he's born blind. And the man, it it says that in the end that the man worshipped him. This is one of the first times we see someone now pour out worship on Jesus. And we see it begin to build in chapter 11 as Mary and Martha worship Jesus in the midst of their tragedy, in the midst of their grief. And then in chapter 12, we have this story, and it's going to be followed by the triumphal entry, which we often think of as a hollow worship at some level, but a worship nonetheless, people who are rejoicing that Jesus is coming in, and they're, they're calling on him, they're declaring him the king. So this story stands out in the middle of that series of events as, as this example of what worship looks like. So I'm going to give you six things that I think that this tells us about worship, six things that we can learn about worship Um, And right before we dive into that, I think it's important for us to, again, look at the context. Here it says, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Now, the other other story tells us, it actually sort of flashes forward and tells us it was like two days before the Passover, I think it said, that that's where the Jews actually meet at the end of this story to declare how they're going to kill Jesus. This happened six days before the Passover. Very easy for us to, to skip right over those things. Passover, not really a familiar tradition for us. Easy to kind of miss. Why does John tell us that? I don't know for sure. But I've got a suggestion. Uh, Passover began on the 14th month of Nisan, 14th day of the month of Nisan, and, and that meant it began at sundown on the 14th into the 15th. 
okay? So he says six days before that, that would take us back to the ninth, the night of the ninth and into the tenth. This appears to be the night of the ninth of the, of the month, okay? What happens on the tenth of the month, according to Exodus chapter 12, is they go out and they select their Passover lamb. So Mary walks in to anoint Jesus, who is the Passover lamb. Now, whether she understands all that, I don't know, but what John says is that's what's happening, right? John says this is the moment where she goes in and she begins to select. And one of the beautiful things about Exodus 12 is it tells us you don't just select the lamb for you. If it's too much food for you, you're going to share it with everybody else and you figure out how much do you need for everybody. So Mary goes in for all of us to anoint the Passover lamb, to select the lamb who will be enough for all of us to partake of. Her act of worship begins with a simple act of faith. So I want to tell you six things that I think this tells us about worship. The first, my first point about worship, worship requires preparation. Worship requires preparation. Notice that it says that this was valuable perfume. We talked about that just a second ago. We get two different values on this, but it all comes from this phrase, 300 denarii, okay? So a denarius was supposed to be like a day's wages. This was roughly the idea, you know, when there wasn't inflation in the Roman Empire, I guess, this is how much a day's wages were, right? Think about that for a second. 300 days of work. The NIV says that's about a year's wages. Sounds like a little more than that to me, actually. That's assuming you're working every day you could possibly be working with all the Jewish holidays cut out. Um, that's every single work day. That's a year's wages. Can we just take that for a minute and put it in modern terms because denarii are never going to work for me. Uh, what is this? A $50,000 bottle of perfume, Right? I don't know how much this is. You can kind of put it in your own terms. This is an insanely expensive bottle of perfume. I don't know if any of you own any perfume this expensive, but this isn't just something she went out and bought, right? I mean, maybe she was independently wealthy. By the way, all sorts of time spending commentaries on whether they were independently wealthy or poor. I really don't care. The point is, either way, she takes something that's just of insane value to all the people who are sitting there. Maybe it's all she had. Maybe she's really rich and it's just one of her prized possessions. There's some evidence from, from ancient texts that maybe this would have been like a wedding gift or a dowry, that this was considered something that she was going to save for her own wedding. Um, it's an interesting theory. We don't know that for sure. Um, it's interesting also, I think it's rather amusing, uh, that, you know, it's this phrase, pistic nard. Okay, nardu pistikes is the Greek and no one's really quite sure. Again, a lot of discussion. What does it mean? What is pistic nard? Is, it, is this a reference to the plant that it comes from? And there's all sorts of theories. I think that's also amusing. We don't even know what it is, right? Something so valuable to them and today, we don't even know what it is two, two millennia later. So Mary comes forward with something that's valuable at that point to her, to everyone there, and, and uses it. This didn't happen overnight. Maybe she'd saved up for years to buy this. Maybe it was something she had been saving for years. Either way, it's something that she'd been preparing for. But she hadn't just been preparing financially. She'd been preparing her heart. We see here Martha serving, Mary at Jesus' feet. This is, we, we've heard the story before, right? Martha's serving everyone, Mary's at Jesus' feet. And Jesus has commended her before and said, this is, this is the better thing. This is the thing everyone should want. Mary's heart has been prepared for Jesus for a long, long time. Her act of worship isn't just a moment of, wow, that was really cool, that, that trick Jesus did in bringing Lazarus back from the dead. That was neat. This is pouring out of devotion and time spent learning at Jesus' feet. Her worship at Jesus' feet comes out of her learning at Jesus' feet. Worship requires preparation because Jesus said we have to worship in spirit and in truth. You can't get your spirit aligned 
with the worship you want to bring without time and effort and humility and preparation. She's been doing that. This moment has been prepared for for a long time. Think about all of the parables that Jesus told that told us that worship and the way that God requires worship require preparation. Think about the wedding feast, the people who wouldn't put on the clothes God had given to them. In other words, it's there. It's for you. All you have to do is put it on, right? It's not a works-based salvation, but you do have to do the thing, right? You do have to do the thing that, that he's given you to do. Or the parable of the virgins, the wise and the foolish virgins, and some of them don't have oil and some of them do. And Jesus commends those who prepared, who came with enough oil to wait out the night to be prepared for the moment of joy and celebration they were going to all have together. Worship isn't something you just get up one morning and decide to do. Worship is something that can come out of you at moments of stress and grief, but only if you've been preparing your heart for that for a long time. I don't think Mary knew what she was saving this perfume for. I don't think for a moment that she'd been spending, I don't know, whatever it is, the last 10 years saving up money to buy perfume, thinking one day I'm going to anoint this teacher's feet that I don't know about yet, right? I don't, I don't think that she'd been saving this for her wedding, thinking, actually, I probably won't use it for that. Whatever it was she was saving it for, she'd been preparing, she'd been building up something valuable to give away from the depths of her heart. Um, the Old Testament prophets spend a lot of time on this, notably that the prophet Joel in the second chapter of his book. One of the things he talks about, he says there's a disaster of this locust plague that's eaten up everything we have. He says the disaster is that we don't have anything left to give to God. So pray with me, he says, tear your hearts, not your garments. Pray with me that God will send us rains, that he will give us something to flourish in this time so that we will have something to give to God, right? That's the goal, is that if God will bless us, we'll have something to give to him. This is the thing we need. Worship requires this preparation. Even in Revelation, the elders that are casting down their crowns, where do you think they got them, right? These elders who come before God, these are people who live their lives for God so that they could have something to throw at his feet, Worship requires preparation. A second point that I want to make is that worship is extravagant. Worship is costly. This is tied in with the first point. But worship is costly. It's extravagant. It's something that's over the top. Listen, Mary could have done this a number of ways. She could have come in, taken a dab out of this bottle, and put it on Jesus' feet. She could have. That would have been a perfectly beautiful, normal thing. In fact, it would have been a little bit more probably socially acceptable. Okay, that, That's expected. But she didn't want to do what was expected. She didn't want to fit in and say, you know, the same way that people anoint anybody's feet, I want to anoint Jesus' feet. She, she wanted to go nuts with it. She broke it, right? There's no hope of saving any of this. She broke it. There's an interesting difference in these passages. Secular scholars sometimes say, well, see, this is a, this is a difference. I, don't, I actually just think it's two perspectives on this. Matthew and Mark say, poured it on Jesus' head, right? They're telling this story from people they heard, maybe who were at the other end of the table, John is this one who's close to Jesus. At the Last Supper, he's leaning up against his chest. John is sitting there right next to him. He sees not just, okay, yeah, she poured it on his head, and then she poured it all over his feet, right? She just lavished it on Jesus, every last bit of it. We'll touch on this in a second, but then, you know, the smell pervades the house, right? She, she uses all of it. There's not a bit left, and she just pours it all over him and then wipes it off with her hair. This is an extravagant act, This is not done with a, well, I'm going to use a little bit and I'll save the rest. This is something she wanted to to make the point, I'm using it all on him. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of more than what I have. And I'm going to give him every last bit of it and wipe it with my hair because she's identifying with this act of worship. 
Worship is extravagant. It's almost borderline wasteful or reckless. And that's what the disciples say in Matthew and Mark. They say, why this waste? That's that phrase. Why this waste? Right? That emotional response is understandable. We hear it from the words of Judas in this passage. Um, John wants us to know specifically it was Judas. But I think that the other disciples must have been thinking the same thing. Everyone at that table probably was a little taken aback, a little bit surprised, a little bit uncomfortable maybe with it. Let's take the the modern example if I can. We don't have any Pistignard. I'm assuming most of you don't have Pistignard. Um, But maybe you have a really nice Corvette. Can you imagine pulling up into this this parking lot with your beautiful Corvette, your $100,000 car maybe, and you say, as an act of worship, I want to show that Jesus means more, and I've got a baseball bat. I'm going to smash it to pieces. We'd all run out and go, whoa, 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 what are you doing? This is extravagant. This is unnecessary. I think we'd all have the same response as the disciples. Couldn't we, couldn't we sell the car and put it in the building fund? Isn't that an act of worship, right? <laughs> Mary wastes it on purpose. She's not stupid. It's not that she doesn't know how this works. It's not that she doesn't know it's valuable. She's doing it because she wants to emphasize Jesus is worth more than my possessions. Jesus is worth more than the things that I value or that my society values or that my family values. There's all sorts of other things. If this is really some wedding gift, think about all of the connotations there. She says, this is more important than me being married or me having some gift to give away or whatever. This Jesus is worth more. That's why worship is a costly, reckless sort of thing. Think about the King David in the Old Testament, his, his acts of worship. Remember when he goes out to build, a, build an, uh, you know, an altar during the plague and the guy says, I'll give it to you. And he says, oh no, I'm buying this field from you for full market value. I will not give a gift to the Lord that costs me nothing. It's got to cost me something or it's not worship. It's no good for me just to get your land to build an altar here. I don't, I don't need that. It's got to cost me something. You think about the Old Testament requirements of the sort of purification and the sort of preparation that were required. Even building altars that they had to find 12 stones, one for each tribe, couldn't use iron tools on them. They had, to be, they had to find certain types of stones to build an altar so that they could worship. Worship always costs us something, and if it doesn't, it's not really worship. Worship is valuable to the degree that, that we can feel the cost or that we can give something of value to God, whether it's our time, whether it's our, our resources, whether it's anything else. The third thing about worship that I want to say is that worship is both intimate and unashamed. It is intimate and unashamed. And this makes worship a little bit of a contradiction, a little bit of a hard thing to handle. Let me start with this. What's the difference between praise and worship? I'm a pastor's son. Uh, my, my brother and I used to, when we were very young, we used to discuss this. What's, what's you know, we're going to have praise and worship. What's, what's the praise and what's the worship? And we, we settled on, we thought quite wisely, that praise were the fast, loud songs. Worship were the slow songs. Um, turns out that's not quite right. What's the difference between praise and worship? Well, there's, there, there, I mean, that, we could spend a whole, a whole day on that. But one difference is that praise is something that you can do without the person present. I can praise what I saw on television last night. I can praise a great moment of athletics. I can praise the, the pitcher, the hitter. I can praise the incredible thing that I saw. I can also praise that person to their face. You're an amazing baseball player. I can say that to someone. Worship, though, is different. Worship requires it to be directed at the person who's receiving it. It's not really worship if you're worshiping God to someone else. It's not quite the same thing. Okay? Worship is something where you come and it's a moment of intimacy with God. Mary shares this moment with Jesus, but in a room full of people. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's intimate, but she also doesn't care who's watching. 
totally unimportant to her whether people watch. I think that as Christians, we can get into one or the other camp on this. Uh, I have known people who felt like you should raise your hands in worship and jump, run around, carry flags, you know, that, that you should do things to show that you're unashamed. They'll go to the verse where David, you know, is, is criticized for kind of being ridiculous in the streets and like taking off his robes, his kingly robes and dancing before the Lord. And his answer was, I'll become even more undignified than this. So there are some people who make that the goal. I'm going to be as weird in worship as I can be. And, 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 that, and that shows my, my act of worship. And then on the other end, there are people who say, I don't want to do anything that would distract anybody else in worship, right? I want to stand here. I'm going to keep my hands by my side. You know, I'm going to just stay very calm, very, very subdued, because I don't want anybody to have cause of distraction because of me. I think both of those come from a pure heart, by the way. I'm not criticizing either point. But worship is a weird mixture of those two. It says, I, I'm not doing this for anyone else. I'm not putting on a show for anybody else. I also don't care if you see really don't care at all. Um, this is sort of like, you know, you hear people criticize, oh, I don't really like a church's music, or I'm not really wild about what they do for praise and worship. I've got great news. If that's you, we're not doing it for you. We're not singing it for you. You don't like our music? I, that's wonderful. It's not for you. It's for God. So if you don't like the way the person next to you is worshiping, that's wonderful. Mind your own business, because it's not about you. <laughs> They're not worshiping for you, right? They're worshiping for the Lord. So sometimes that line can be hard to find, I'm going to admit, right? You can feel like, I don't know, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, all that, and that's great. But the purpose of worship, it's this moment of intimacy, but it's totally unashamed. This is, this is kind of a wild act. Um, I don't want to read too much into the cultural context, it's always hard to know, but Mary, a woman in that culture, goes up to just start pouring out something lavish on Jesus' head and his feet. She doesn't ask Jesus if he wants it. Um, I mean, I can imagine Jesus saying, oh, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, that's a lot. But she also doesn't really care what other people think. She doesn't care what people are going to assume or that people are going to think this is inappropriate in some way or that people doesn't care at all. Her act of devotion is totally toward Jesus. And that intimacy, although it seems to be in conflict with her unashamedness, it's actually what drives it. Because of her intimacy with Jesus, she doesn't care. He's the only one in the room as far as she's concerned. Worship bonds us to Jesus. The Bible tells us over and over again in different ways that worship makes us like the object of our worship. There's this verse in the Old Testament in Chronicles where it says that the people worshipped idols, and so they, they worshipped worthless idols, and so they themselves became worthless. This is a concept that's repeated over and over again in the prophets. We become like what we worship, what we adore, what we put our focus on. And sometimes we're convicted to realize what we're worshipping is not actually quite what we thought. Because we don't have Jesus here in flesh and blood, sometimes we can begin to worship our idea about Jesus. We can worship our, our idolatry today typically is not idols. I've never been to any of your homes and found any statues that you were worshiping. Um, if that's you, let's discuss, but it's probably not. That's not our idolatry. Our idolatry today in 21st century American Christian circles is that we can worship our concepts about God rather than who he really is. Our constant fight against idolatry is figuring out, are we worshiping in spirit and in truth? Are we really worshiping the God who's revealed himself to us and how he's revealed himself? We're constantly shaping our own image of God and trying not to make God into our image, but to ask God to make us into his image. We want to be more like Christ, not make Christ more like us. Mary's worship in its intimacy is making her more like Christ, and I believe that's why he lifts her up as the example and says, here we go, this is this is someone that's beginning to make herself like me by her worship. 
First John chapter 3, verse 2, same guy who wrote this book, it says, One day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Worship is our effort in the midst of the curse, behind a veil, in the brokenness of the human condition, to begin to be made like him because we're trying to see him as he is. Worship is our effort to look through the clouds and the darkness around us to see who Jesus really is. Our fourth point about what worship is, is that worship is convicting. Worship is convicting. It reveals and corrects our priorities. Worship is convicting. Why do I say this? Well, Judas, Judas our, our, our dear friend Judas, poor guy. Uh, I, not really poor guy. I mean, he deserves it, I guess. But, you know, everywhere he goes, they always, you know, John calls him right out. Judas, who's Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, right? And you can hear John rolling his eyes as he writes this sentence. Decades later going, and then there was Judas, right? One of us who betrayed him. And he then goes on to say, you know, he was worried about, you know, he says this thing about the poor. And then John, as if to really just hammer the point home, says, I just want to be clear. It's not because he cared about the poor. Other than the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus, which is just comes out basically every time his name is mentioned uh, in the New Testament. And the fact that he, in response to his own grief and sorrow, committed suicide rather than dealing with the forgiveness that, that Jesus would have offered him. This is really the only other negative character trait we learn about Judas, which is that he was a thief that he stole money. Sort of a funny little play on words, the, the word bestadzain in Greek. It's, it, the, the best equivalent would be like the English, in British English, lift. You know, to lift something could mean to carry it for someone or to take it off of them, right? It says he, he carried the money bag for us, right? And there's a little double meaning there. He, uh, he held on to the money for us. Sometimes he carried it in the bag. Sometimes he carried it in his pockets. Regardless, he always had the money on him, right? Judas was obsessed with money. I thought as I was reading this and thinking about it of St. Augustine, one of the, the great church fathers of the Christian faith, who once wrote that idolatry is using that which ought to be worshipped and worshipping that which ought to be used. And Judas is the example of the one who begins worshipping. He's in the presence of Jesus. He's in the presence of infinite value and glory. And he begins using Jesus to get money, which is what he was really worshipping. And the reason I wanted Jake to read into the end of that, that passage and just mention what comes after this is what follows is this is apparently the catalyst for Judas going to the chief priest the first time and saying, let's start negotiating, right? This act of worship by someone else has nothing to do with Judas. This act of worship by someone else is what triggers his complete rebellion from God. The other disciples are apparently convicted by it too. And I think it's really Notable that Matthew and Mark say it was, they, they just keep it vague. It was the disciples who did it. I know they knew it was Judas. I'm sure all the disciples told them that. But I bet you when, you know, perhaps Peter was talking to Mark as he was researching his book, or, you know, when Matthew was remembering back, he was saying, but we were all thinking it, right? Judas may have said it, but we were all thinking it. What are you doing? Jesus went about. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He, you know, he sent Peter out when they needed to pay the temple tax to catch a fish, to pull a coin out, to pay the tax. They're not loaded, and they're looking at this extravagant gift. They had to all be thinking of it. I think it's a pretty natural response, to be honest. And yet, what ultimately happens here is that worship reveals priorities. Jesus says, listen, the poor, you will have plenty of time to help the poor, Jesus says. Answering Judas and the other disciples. You have plenty of opportunities to serve others and do those things. But me, you will not always have with you. And I'm the priority. Jesus is the priority. What would you give as you sit here today in the year 2022? to be able to worship at Jesus' feet like this for five minutes? What would you give to be able to do that? Jesus says there is something far more important than helping the poor or advancing the kingdom of God. He says there's always going to be causes to get involved in. There's always going to be things the church can do outside its walls and should. 
Jesus doesn't say that's a terrible idea. He doesn't say, the poor. Who said anything about the poor, right? That's not his response. His response is, oh yeah, that's a great idea. You're going to have plenty of opportunities for that. Right now, I am more important. My life, my coming death, my burial, these are more important than what you do for others, your acts of service for others. That's still true, by the way. Jesus, our worship of Jesus is still more important than what we do, okay? But that doesn't mean, of course, we exclude them. They're both parts of our whole life attitude of worship. And Jesus is saying, make sure your priorities are straight. Someone else's worship, though, is what's, is what's doing it. I, I think this is kind of interesting because we're in church, so I think we, we should just be honest in church. Um, I don't know if anybody else has had this experience. You're welcome to judge me. Have you ever looked at someone you thought was like a lesser Christian than you? Let's just start there. And then seen an act of worship in their lives that convicted you. Anybody else ever had that experience? You don't have to show hands. You don't have to point at who it was. <laughs> I know I have. I know I've been convicted by a younger believer that I've looked at and seen the, 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 the genuineness of their heart of worship, the way they poured themselves out into service and thought, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't remember the last time I worshiped like that, right? This act of worship convicts everyone in the room, and what should be the lesson from it from all of them is, why aren't you doing this? Why, did, why, did, why was Mary the one who thought to do this? Why isn't anyone else focused on Jesus' needs like this? Why isn't anybody else pouring themselves out, breaking themselves open to pour out on Jesus? Worship is convicting. And when we see other people worshiping, one of the things, one of the beauties, one of the values of corporate worship, the reason it's not enough for you to just go home, never come back to church again and just worship in your own home, is because you're supposed to be here being convicted by our worship together. We come here to be convicted by one another's worship to see other ways that other people serve and worship and say, wow, I don't always do it like that. I don't have that same level of passion or love for the Lord. We should surround ourselves by people whose worship is convicting to us. Number five, worship fills the house with fragrance. This is my favorite part of this passage, and I think it's just what I can't, just can't get over as I read this read it many times in the last week, and it just keep coming back to verse three. It says that he poured out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. This incredibly intimate, almost disgusting image. This um, useless, inefficient image. This thing of her, she, I mean, there's plenty of good ways to do this. She could put a little on, wiped it with a cloth. That's probably better. She doesn't because that's not the point. Her point was not to be useful to Jesus specifically. And then it says... And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I think there might be just a note of humor here. Uh, It says, the word it uses is a a word that's a little bit neutral. Um, You know, none of our words for smell or odor in English are really neutral. They all either sound negative. We we usually have to say it was a good smell. We do that because smell sounds a little bit like it's not good. Um, I think that the word's a little bit neutral in Greek when Paul uses it and says your, your giving is an act of, it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful fragrance to the Lord. He adds a word. He, he says it's good smell on purpose, right? So this just says it's, it, the smell filled the house. You ever put on too much perfume? Uh, I knew a guy in college. <laughs> and I don't even know if I need to tell the rest of that story because I think you know where this is going. It was legend on the hall you did not want to be near his door in the morning. And he was, he was from another country. I think it was a little bit of a cultural thing, but it was one of these things. If you were there in the morning when he came out, it was like a wall hit you. It was awful. 
You know, he'd say, I'll walk to class with you. You'd go, please don't, right? Because you could smell him and he would almost come off onto you. There's not, it doesn't really matter how good something smells, too much of it is going to be too much. You ever walked into a perfume shop, you know, and it's just, oh my goodness, it's overwhelming. You feel that, right? Uh, I don't know what kind of house Simon the leper had, um, but it probably wasn't as large as your house today. Think about that for a second. Even if it was a mansion, it was probably smaller than what you live in. And this house was fit. She broke a whole jar of perfume that was so expensive it's worth a year's wages. It's, it's got to be a powerful perfume or a lot of it or both. And she breaks it and pours it all out. It overwhelms everyone there. Once again, notice Mary doesn't care. Not, never, apparently never once in her mind did it, did it occur to her this would be disruptive to the dinner. Didn't, did, wasn't worried about it, not concerned, just, just breaks it and just pours it out all over and the smell fills the house. But think about that for a second. First of all, it focuses everyone on what's going on. It focuses everyone on Jesus. Her act of worship brought the attention back to Jesus totally. When there's plenty of other things to talk about and think about, when people are rejoicing over Simon the leper and Lazarus the dead and uh, ribbing them about their new nicknames, right? Here's Mary bringing the focus back to Jesus, bringing the focus back to who he is all over his head, all over his feet, and the smell is just hitting everyone. It's almost rude. In fact, I think it really is rude in its own way. The smell fills the house with fragrance. But think about today, think about how worship works in this house. Do you know people whose worship in this house fill it with fragrance? Have you noticed the the way that Pastor Dan prepares every Sunday and brings a message? He puts a lot of time into that. You can tell. He manuscripts everything he does. I can't even do that. This is an act of worship that he does for the Lord. And it, it fills our whole church with an odor, with a smell, with a fragrance. Have you noticed the way that Brian and others on the worship team, Mark and Israel, the way they get up and the, the way they play? The way that Israel uses his gifts on the piano, his incredible gift to just sit there without, without music and play the piano. It's an act that fills the house with fragrance. And I am quite certain that Israel doesn't even want me to talk about him today. He's not doing this for your benefit. He's not doing it because he wants to be cool. He's doing it because it's an act of worship and it flows out of his heart. As a result, that fragrance gets all over you. The, the smell of his love for Jesus, the way that people perform their acts here. I could go on and on. The way that Kim, Ernest, and others give by being in the nursery so that those of us with small children can be in here. The way we can go down the list. You know them. You, you've seen it. The acts of worship all around us, they give this church a smell. They give it a fragrance that, that affects us. Let's talk about those who worship in the middle of grief. Have you seen the way Kay Cryer, the way that... Nancy Miller and her kids the last seven years have worshipped the Lord in the middle of grief. The way the Crossett family has worshipped in the middle of their grief. The way that Cheryl Crossett stood at a funeral and invited people to focus on Christ and said, Do you, you know, the most important thing for you today is to make your heart right with God. These are acts of worship that fill the house with fragrance. You cannot get past them. You cannot get them over you. They affect everything about the way that you walk out. Everybody walked out of there smelling like Mary's perfume that night. All of them went forward, and that's a challenge to us. How is my worship? Remember, it's focused on Jesus. We're not doing it for anybody else. We don't really care who else sees it, but how are my acts of worship affecting other people? How are they rubbing off this smell on other people? Sixth and finally, worship creates an eternal moment in the middle of a fading world. Worship creates an eternal moment in the middle of a fading world. I want to read to you this passage. This is from the book Paralandra. This is 
a book by C.S. Lewis. It's the second of his space trilogy books. If you didn't know he wrote a sci-fi trilogy, he did. It's very good. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty just to make this make sense, but he tells the story of this character who meets an angel for the first time, and the angel is nothing but a shaft of light. And so he talks about how weird the shaft of light was, and he says the other strange thing about it was its angle. It was not at right angles to the floor, but as soon as I've said this, I hasten to add that this way of putting it is a later reconstruction. What one actually felt in the moment was that the column of light was vertical, but the floor was not horizontal. The whole room seemed to have healed over as if we were on board a ship. The impression, however, produced was that this creature had reference to some perfect horizontal, to some whole system of directions based outside the earth, and that its mere presence imposed that alien system on me and abolished the terrestrial, the earthly horizontal. I can't think of a better way to describe worship. Worship takes the alien system of what is right and wrong, of what is straight and what is not, and it imposes it on us when we're in the middle of it. Here's why I say that. Look at what what happens here. Jesus says in verse 7, perhaps the most surprising part of this, Mary's done this act, and so far I focused on how Mary was in tune with Christ, how her act was beautiful. Let me show you how she was totally confused. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied to the criticism. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. I think probably everyone in the room stopped and said, what? Right? This is the days before the Passover. Jesus has warned his disciples. They have been as clueless as any of us would have been. Right? Over and over again, they've said, that's great. Don't know what you're talking about. Okay? I'm going to ignore that confusing piece of data and keep moving. Right? Mary hasn't been a part of those conversations. She certainly doesn't know about his burial. They're looking forward to the Passover, which traditionally in John's narrative, has been some of the biggest moments. This is where Jesus is confronting the leaders and he's calling the people to repent. That's what's happening at the Passover. This is going to be the best one yet. This is the biggest event. On no one's radar is in a few days Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus says, she's doing this act of worship for my burial. You know who's probably most surprised in the room is Mary. At the very least, there's nothing in any of these texts that tells us that Mary was on the inside of this, that she was aware. She's coming forward, and I presume in response to Lazarus, I I presume this is a response to you've given life back to my brother. You've done these things for me. And she's pouring out her joy and her affection on Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm receiving this act of worship for something you couldn't even know it's for. I'm receiving something from your pure heart. And I'm telling you, it honors and glorifies me in a way you couldn't possibly have done. Reminds me of Romans 8 when it says that the Holy Spirit prays for us when we can't pray with groanings which cannot be uttered. Things that can't even be put into Human language, the Holy Spirit is there worshiping alongside of us, praying with us. Our acts of worship, in other words, are in harmony with a different melody that's coming from heaven. Our act of worship makes a beautiful sound because Jesus says, I receive it and I add to it. I receive it and I redirect it. I take it as something that you weren't aware of or intending. The prior chapter, we've watched Mary and Martha. We've watched them praise in the middle of losing their brother. They've worshiped and they've said, we know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Their worship is directed at, we know you are who you say you are, and and and, and we're, we're content to just accept that you are who you say you are. Their worship in the middle of grief ends up being worship that's actually joy. Jesus brings back Lazarus. It changes that historical moment. Now the opposite is happening. We're between two deaths. We're between Lazarus and the death of Jesus. She's worshiping and pouring out joy, and Jesus says this is actually a moment of sorrow. This is a moment of something bitter that's coming. This is a moment of worship that I received for something you couldn't possibly have known it was for. Sometimes our worship, though joyful, is actually in the heavenly sense in the middle of sorrow. 
And sometimes our worship in the middle of earthly sorrow is in the middle of heavenly joy. Our worship aligns us with something that we can't see. It aligns us with the heart of God. It aligns us with worship that's going on in the heavenlies. There's something more though here, which is when Jesus says this will be remembered forever, it creates an eternal moment. Mary was never again going to have the chance to do this act of worship. This one moment, it was a fleeting moment, and yet it's eternal. It's there forever. It's something that doesn't fade into the past with God. It's as if frozen in time, Mary is always there worshiping Jesus in the way that she did that night. Her act of worship is still happening as far as God's view of time. So let's not wait for a future time to worship. Let's not wait for a future time to come forward and pour out our hearts and the things of greatest value to us to God. Because right now is an eternal moment. Right now is a moment that we can create that harmony, that sound that fills the house and that acts as an eternal act of worship. I'm going to close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to pray. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And I pray that you would lead us as we worship. I thank you for the way that you work in our hearts and for the examples that you've given us in scripture of how to love you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that each and every one of us today in our acts of service, in our love, in our faith, in the things that we do, that we would find ways to pour out our hearts to you in ways that are costly and valuable and ways that show how much we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.